The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode number 119 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Please forgive my voice in the intro and the end as I am battling a cold right now, so my voice is a little bit gravelly. I apologize, but we're so glad you joined us again this week. A few things before we get into the episode. Uh, First of all, this is our last regular episode of the year, and I'm so excited that it's a great Christmas episode. But uh, next Monday, we will have our listener story special, and I've gotten some great stories and thoughts. Thank you so much to all of you who have submitted. Uh, If you have not yet and you want to share something, please get it to me uh, this week. Uh, The episode will be going live next Monday, so I do need to get it in the next couple of days. If you'd like to be a part of that, I will be reading our listeners' uh, stories and thoughts on Christmas. We've had some really just beautiful thoughts. It can be anything. It can be short. It can be a story. Just your feelings, whatever. We'd love to share it on that episode. Uh, And then we will be on vacation. Just as a reminder, we'll be off for a few weeks. I'm not sure exactly when we're coming back, but uh, you'll know. (laughs) You'll see it pop up in the feed. Be sure to follow us on social media because we'll announce when we're coming back. But this week, we have such a fantastic episode. Jason F. Wright is an incredible author and speaker, and he's one of these guys who just, we sat down, and not even more than a couple minutes into talking, I felt like I had known him forever. Very approachable, super nice guy. I got to meet his daughter as well, who was just terrific, and it's a great conversation. And this week in my Latter-day Life, I get a little bit starstruck. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today here in the Latter-day Live studios, it is my pleasure to have a very popular author and speaker, Jason F. Wright. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. Oh, it's so fun and uh, getting to know you a little bit as we were talking before we started recording, we found out that my niece served in your ward. That's so fun. Yeah, sat in my uh, living room and had dinner with the family many times. She is an awesome dynamite young lady. So fun. So Jason is the author of a very, well, many popular books, but one that we're going to be talking about quite a bit because it recently was made into a major motion picture that I got to see and that is absolutely fantastic. And I'm dying to talk to you about that, but before we do, let's get to know you a little better. Tell us a little bit about where you're from. I was born in uh, St. Louis, spent six wonderful months there that I don't remember. (laughs) Moved to Germany, spent five years there. My dad was a civilian working for the Army and and have some good memories of... uh, uh, Frankfurt and Karlsruhe, Germany. Beautiful. Spent three years in Chicago, which I really loved. Got Walter Payton's autograph. No How kidding. Cool is that? Walter Payton. The That's Cubs awesome. went to watch the the Bears practice. Um, and then we went. The Cubs went to watch the Bears practice. I'm realizing now how strange that sounds. The yeah. Cub Scouts. Oh, I went was to like, watch. You just said Chicago. The Cubs went to what? What? The, the Cub Scouts yeah. went to watch the Bears practice. So, Oh, that's really fun. Um, it was so much fun. Love Chicago. You also just gave away your age. We're about the same I'm age. I'm old, dude. I know. Yeah. I think I've got you by a year or two. To, you got uh, me by one year. But at this age, who cares? And I'm glad you're not live streaming. My hair is very gray, so I look 77. <laughs> no, you look great. Um, so, But then we settled in Virginia and uh, when I was eight years old. My dad got the job he always wanted, working um, for a, a small kind of an outpost of the Pentagon in little Charlottesville, Virginia. I love Charlottesville. It's, it's home. And it I is it. a great place. Today. So much history up through the Shenandoah Valley. So I actually live in Woodstock now, which is about an hour and a half away from Charlottesville. But that's my mom's still there. The house I grew up in, she's still there. And so that's Virginia's home. Awesome. So what were you like as a kid? What were you into? Um, I wrote... I told stories, um, 
Sometimes they were true. <laughs> I um, I could convince my parents of nearly anything. Um, I um, grew up in a in a service oriented, creative kind of a household. Mm. My my dad was a really gifted storyteller and creator. I think if he were alive today and were younger, he would have been a great YouTube influencer. He just um, just had a knack for creating really interesting things, and always with the purpose of um, blessing someone else's life. He never wrote or or created anything that wasn't meant as a gift for someone. And so I grew up in that in that kind of environment. And um, youngest of four, um, very. Do you active remember in the, the first thing? Do you remember the first thing you wrote? So um, I I do. Um, I wrote a poem called um, "Mom Loves Tacos." Mom was, loves tacos. It's it's brilliant. It's um, <laughs> and I have it in a I have it in a scrapbook at home. But the uh, first I thing it. I wrote that I was really proud of was a play called Molly and Polly, and it was about these two bunny rabbits that mm. um, wore leather jackets and rode Harleys and solved crime. And I was in the third grade. Um, it was just before we moved to Virginia from Chicago, and my teacher read it and said, "This is really good. You should do more of this." And I'll, I, without telling you the whole long winding story, that's probably why I'm here today because of that experience with that yeah. um, with that teacher and and writing this skit that we then acted out in front of the class. I sent to a publisher. Um, you sent it off to a publisher. I stole stamps from my mom's desk and I sent it to a publisher. <laughs> I went to the library at school and I found an address for Scholastic and I sent it off. And I didn't have any idea what I was doing. But I got a card back. It's one of my favorite memories. I got this a little postcard back that said, um, Dear Mr. Wright, thank you for your submission. It has been forwarded onto the publication committee for consideration, which now I realize is just a form letter that you could send something on a on a scrap piece of paper and you'd get yeah. that response. Sure. But back then I thought, oh my gosh, I'm gonna be a published author, y'all. And I strutted around my school. <laughs> yeah. So I never heard back. So I I suspect it's still in consideration. I don't know. One of these days, they may they may call you. Molly and Polly is ready to go. It's ready to go. Yeah. yeah. Um, but but that led to um, a, a whole series of plays about Molly and Polly, and short stories, and a lot of poetry, and then um, and then uh, yeah, kind of growing up and hitting about thirty years old, and realizing after being involved in politics and small business and. And um, dabbling in some acting and things here and there. Yeah. I um, I thought, you know, I wanted to be a writer in the third grade. It's not too late. So here we are. That is amazing. Well, we've we've taken some uh, some steps out, jumping from Molly and Polly to here we are. Here we are. So going back into your into your formative uh, into your teenage years and in high school, were you involved in theater or mm-hmm. a lot of theater? You know, the creative writing magazine. Um, I wrote a book of my first, uh, a lot of folks think of Christmas Jars as kind of my first book and, um, or the James Miracle, which came out, um, just before that. But really in high school, I wrote a book of poetry, a collection called Sitting on the Dock. And I, again, I had a terrific teacher who was kind of there by my side as I was grieving the loss of my father, my junior year. And so that summer between my junior and senior years, she said, you know, some of this stuff is publishable. And I didn't hear anything else she said that day. I just went home to my mom and said, hey, she thinks I should publish a book. And so we um, we found a little publisher in, uh, in Charlottesville that was associated with the university. And I don't remember how many copies were published, but I went uh, to every bookstore within 50 miles and sold them books. And then I called the, um, the newspapers and the radio stations and the TV stations and that in that area in Charlottesville and said, Hey, I'm the author of this book and gosh, you should really have me on to talk about it. And, uh, I don't know what I was thinking back then. I was a precocious were, dude. So but, you were really an entrepreneur and a writer at the same time. Yeah. And I still think I'm probably as much a kind of an entrepreneurial spirit. And I've had a lot of like flaming failures. I mean, I've had a lot of All crashes and burns. Too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, it hasn't always been successful, but I've sure enjoyed the ride. Yeah. So you you mentioned uh, losing your father mm-hmm. when you were a teenager. T- 
Talk a little bit about that. I've never been through that experience, but I think it's every kid, teenagers, whatever, absolute worst fear. Yeah, yeah, no. It. Um, my father had been diagnosed with cancer when I was twelve, mm. and he was forty six, and um, had surgery, took out uh, one of his kidneys, and um, was pretty healthy. Went went back to work and played golf and served in the church and. Um, and I didn't, I never remember a conversation with my older siblings or my mom about like, what if now I've learned that they were having a lot of those kinds of conversations about mm. life without dad, yeah. but I, I didn't, I wasn't really privy to those. Um, and then, uh, and then it came back at the base of his spine and he was in the hospital for some exploratory surgery. And again, this was just another, he was just in for a couple of days. They were going to go in and look around and kind of look at some options. And I, uh, on a Friday night, I went by the hospital on my way home from school because I had a, I had a speech and debate tournament the next morning in DC. Mm-hmm. And so I knew I probably wouldn't see him all day Saturday. So I, a buddy of mine and I went by the university of Virginia hospital and I said, Hey, I probably won't see you tomorrow. Good mm. luck. You're awesome. He was, you know, again, he was just in for some for some tests to see what they might do next. And and uh like like in a movie that you you've watched a thousand times, he held my hand and said, Be good and mm. and I walked out and a few hours later he was gone. Unbelievable. So. How does that shape your faith going through it? You were 16 at the time. Mm-hmm. How does that affect your faith at the time? Like, it must have opened up some big, big questions about the gospel, testimony, yeah. hereafter, the plan. Yeah, no, absolutely did. Um, I mean, it, it shakes you. It's supposed to shake you. If it doesn't shake you... Um, then there are probably more serious things at play, right? And I and I knew that, and I uh, my I had great great support around me, but but it was really hard, and I don't think I grieved as well as um, as I could have or should have, and and I I finally understand that now that if I could go back, I'd probably do some things differently, but yeah. but it, it was a, a you know couldn't go back to the cemetery for almost a year and. Yeah. And it was it, it was it was hard to hear the voice of the Lord for for a while. Um, by the time I was nineteen, I had it was still not um, real to me, but I knew that it wasn't like this was my reality, even though I was struggling to fully understand it. And sure. so I went uh, served a mission, and it it um, was probably the you know the most certainly the most important thing I'd done up to that point in my life, and I knew that. If I wanted to continue learning some of my father's really significant lessons, the best place to do that would be as a missionary. And I felt his his presence um, every single day as I served in Brazil for two years. And was there any pressure? You know, now your mom's on her own. It's only been a couple of years, three years, whatever. Was there sort of that question? Was it? Did that make it tougher to decide to go on a mission? Um. Gosh, no one has ever asked that or put that quite like that. But that is a that's a brilliant thought. Uh, no, I no real spoken pressure. She was she wanted me to go, but yeah, as the youngest, internal with, pressure, absolutely, yeah. Um, wondering what, yeah, and it was and it was hard. It was a it was a hard grind um, those two years with her kind of on her own, and the, you know she had again a great ward family and right. three older. Uh, older my older siblings that helped out but then I got home and I was home for about a year and um less than a year actually I was probably home about nine months and she said that's my turn and so at 50 years old my mom went on a mission um said she wanted to do something medical because that was her background wanted to speak English and wanted to stay stateside and uh she told that to the bishop to the stake president to the missionary department when they called her (laughs) and she went to Chile and proselyted and spoke Spanish. So um, that is amazing. And then when I met the woman I married to, I uh, I called her on her mission, talked to her mission president, and said I I want to call, let her know that I'm proposing tonight to the woman of my dreams, 
And I said, obviously, we'll wait till you get home to get married. And she said, you're an idiot. <laughs> no, you won't. Spoken like a true mom. She said, go, you go get married and I'll, I'll meet her when I get home and I'm where I'm supposed to be. So, And she felt very much like um, though she, um, she never saw him. She didn't have any of those crazy kind of spiritual visions. She knew that my dad was pretty a pretty close companion on that mission. So. so suddenly this is, Jason, this is like, what's funny is you've got the sort of typical Latter-day Saint track going, but the track has been moved over a few inches, mm-hmm. you know? You're suddenly getting married with without, you know, your dad has passed, your mom's serving a mission, all these things are typical things, but you're you're doing it very differently. I can imagine that that must have been somewhat freeing, though, too, to say, okay, I can do just about anything. Yeah. Again, man, you're good at this. These are really great kind of talking points to get my mind going. I didn't – you're right. I didn't um, – it was a little – the journey was a little different. And some of my exits on, on that highway were not the same as everyone else, but the destination's been the same. And I think I've learned that um, we each, you know, we, we, I'm a currently serve as a bishop and um, I'm always telling the members, it's okay that, that we're all a little different and that we all have our own, we all have our own relationship with the savior. It's, it's, it truly is customized for each one of us, but I haven't, like, I'm just now learning, oh, you know what? That's true for you too, dude. Like, you can tell your members that from the pulpit all day long, but you also need to look in the mirror and realize that it's it is okay that that my journey has been different and that I've um, I have learned some gospel lessons in different ways maybe than other people have. But I, I awesome. don't know what I'd do differently. So you mentioned you were kind of an entrepreneur. You were doing business. You were doing you were in politics for a while. Mm-hmm. While you were kind of pursuing those things were you still writing in the background I was. Was yeah it- i was the guy that would um all the way back to miss sampson in third grade whatever the assignment was i would do a, a little more and not to show off or get a better grade or, or get brownie points but because i just you know a, a two-page essay on you know what it's like to be a christian was never enough. It had to be ten or twelve or fifteen, and yeah. and then as I had these different, um, I ran for Congress in Utah back in. Oh gosh! So, oh, I didn't know that. So I ran against Chris Cannon uh, for the nomination back in two thousand for the GOP nomination. Had a great experience. Um, involved in some small businesses in Pleasant Grove. Owned a video store back in the day. Used to own Cougar Video in Provo. Uh, I rented from Cougar Utah. Video. Yeah, you owe me some late fees. Yeah, let's talk about that after we're done. <laughs> What was that off of Freedom? Yeah, yeah. In the old strip mall in the, in the, in the corner. corner. Yeah, yeah. You guys had pizza in there too. We did. Yeah. You had a like a pizza special that was like a large pizza, two drinks, and two videos or and something. VHS. Like that. We lived in Provo. We rented from Cougar Video all the time. No one listening even knows what a VHS. Is. <laughs> <laughs> I can picture Cougar Video right there in that corner. Yeah. Yeah, I had that blue drop metal drop box in the back. Um, so owned that for a couple of years. Sold that. And um, to your question, at every stop, everything I've ever done, I was just, I mean, if I was asked, uh, I worked for a nonprofit in D.C. when I we moved from Utah back home, and if they needed business cards written, I would raise my hand and say, well, I can do that. And I teach a lot of writing workshops now around the country, particularly with younger people, and and I start every session by saying all writing is storytelling. Whether mm. you're writing a brochure or copy for a website or an intro yeah. to a podcast episode, it's... Everything you put on paper is telling some kind of a story. Love it. So when did the shift then come? Or not only when, because you already talked about about 30, you decided, okay, writing is more of the calling. Mm-hmm. But how did that shift happen? So I was working. Um, we had just, we were in the process of looking to relocate um, back to Virginia from Utah and had this Great experience running for Congress. Really glad that I lost, and uh, but I, um, I really enjoyed it. And I learned a lot, and I was I was writing, living in D.C., doing a lot of ghost writing. Wrote for some, um, everyone from guys running for mayor to some presidential candidates, position papers and op eds for yeah. newspapers, and started to kind of find my voice with um, kind of conservative politics. 
and I, um, my wife really was sort of the one that just kept saying, you know, this is, this is great. And you're supporting the family and you know, that there's, this is meaningful work, but, but I know that you're not completely satisfied because the, that third grade dream is still kind of Mm. unrealized. So, so in, uh, in 2004, I wrote a little book called The James Miracle, just a little novella. It's about 20,000 words. And I sent off to some publishers and a, a publisher, I think they're still doing some things, Millennial Press. They're actually based mm. in Utah County. They called me and said, you know, it's this is great. This is not a national bestseller, but this is a really sweet story. We'd like to do something with it. So they they published that in 04, a couple thousand copies available, basically where you could buy church books only. And um, that built some confidence that maybe I could yeah. do this. And as um, as I was trying to decide what to do next, we had the Christmas jars experience as a family where we where we gave away a jar. And I can tell as much of that as you want. But Give us, like, if you life. would, for, for those who aren't familiar with the book or the movie, uh, as we talked about earlier, I haven't read the book, but I did get to see the movie. Um, you know, if people don't just give a two minute overview as to what the Christmas jars is. Okay. So, um, so my family, we were in October of 2004, my wife, two daughters, um, and a baby boy at the time, we sort of were brainstorming on a tradition that might, um, bring a little light back into the holidays, mostly for me. My dad died just before Christmas, and it was a, um, for anyone who's lost someone particularly, particularly, how's that better? Yeah, better. Particularly. Particularly. Particularly during the holidays. Yeah. Um, it tends to cast kind of a fog that that um, reappears every year. And so I wanted a way to shake that, and we, um put a jar on our counter and said, all right, here's the deal. We don't even know what we're calling this thing yet, but we're going to put our change in it every day. No matter what, you go to Walmart, you come back with 50 cents, you go to 7-Eleven, you come back with a quarter. You drop your change in the jar and you think about the needs of somebody else. Hmm. And you just pause and just think about what this really means. And let's stop thinking of Christmas as a 24-hour holiday that you unwrap and enjoy. And by five o'clock that evening, half the toys are broken. And then you can't wait to kind of put the Christmas decorations away and then Christmas just becomes an event. And I didn't want to treat the day that commemorates this, the savior's birth as some event on my calendar. Um, and so the Christmas jar that first year, mid October until Christmas Eve became our way of celebrating Christmas every single day. And we gave a jar away our very first jar um, December 24th, 2004, to a family um, that we knew uh, the money wasn't going to change their lives. It was like $88 that first year, but we knew that it would be enough to have a real impact and that more than the money, they'd know that they were loved, that they had been seen, that they yeah. were alone. And um, boy, that night, gosh, I mean, I could spend an hour just on that. It it changed us forever. And over the, the coming weeks um, into the new year, my wife's like, all right, so you you wrote this thing last year. You know you can write something longer than 700 words, which had become my specialty because I was writing for so many magazines and mm-hmm. newspapers, and I could write 700 words in my sleep. She said, you now know that you can do something longer and craft a real story, so why not fictionalize this Christmas jars experience? Our experience wasn't enough to justify a novel, so um, fictionalize it and see if see if the same publisher or someone else would be interested and. And um, here we are, a million copies later. How long did it take you to write the Christmas jars? Um, about a month. Yeah. About a month. Lots of help from my family. Um, my brother Jeff, who better be listening, or he's in big trouble, <laughs> provided some some feedback on the manuscript as we went. And um, it was just... Uh, I, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm not one who believes that the Lord is involved in the final score of, you know, the BYU Utah game. Clearly. Or this. 
Sorry, I couldn't help myself. That's pretty clearly. good. That's pretty. That is. <laughs> that's pretty solid. Um, but, but I do think that he he clearly is invested in our success. And I submitted that thing in February of 2005. It sat in in the slush pile at several publishers for a long time. I was right, sitting, right under Molly and Polly. Right under Molly and Polly. I sat. I was sitting on a plane. I had just landed back home after a trip and I was um, after wor- another work trip and I got an email on my phone from Desert Book Shadow Mountain saying and this was April saying it's probably we probably can't do it this year but like there's something really special here like we think there's a movement not just a book but like a tradition and mm. we'd love to be a part of it and um, had a contract in a couple weeks really light edit to the manuscript and gosh by the by Labor Day weekend that book was out which is absolutely unheard of no kidding and i just know that the lord had some hand in that in in kind of guiding that not not so that i could make my mortgage payment but so that people's lives could be touched by what has now become um a real kind of a grassroots movement something a lot of people are doing thousands And and thousands i can't believe how quickly you wrote the book uh i mean if I could give, you can correct me where I'm wrong on this, but the synopsis basically a family does this. They give out the Christmas jars and you end up learning the backstory behind it, how it kind of started for them mm-hmm. later on. They, it was almost an accident. And then there's a young reporter who wants to kind of make her mark in the world by exposing who's been giving out these jars, falls in love with the family. And it's it's a romantic comedy. It's a family comedy. It's a heartwarmer I mean, it's got everything. It's really great. So while we're on this, the theme of the Christmas jars, how does this go from being this amazing book that's creating a movement to not only a movie, because a lot of books get turned into movies, but this is also BYU TV makes it their entire Christmas. I mean, this mm-hmm. is the Christmas message, the mm-hmm. kickoff. How did that all happen? <laughs> Um, that is a great, I don't have any idea. I don't know. <laughs> Divine intervention. Um, we, we signed a development deal for the film in February of 2006 and, um, one heard laughter another and, you know, everything that kind of could go wrong did go wrong. And a lot of really wonderful people invested countless hours in trying to get the thing made, but it wasn't until, um, BYU had, uh, they had some interest in getting into, you know, doing some feature work, and uh, they, but knew that they probably weren't going to produce it themselves alone, and so they partnered up with uh, Muse Entertainment out of L.A. and Toronto, uh, and they have a long track record of of movies like this, good relationships with people like Hallmark and and um, some of the exhibitors. And um, they reached out, and they were able to kind of acquire the project from their previous regime. And um, it's really hard to believe that after, really after 13 years of everyday working to get this thing off the ground, it happened pretty darn quickly once we added some new people to the to the team. And yeah. um, today we have a film. It's also really interesting that for 13 years of working on this and everything else, that it all comes full circle and comes out of BYU. I mean, is that... That's kind of funny, right? Because I'm sure you were working with a lot of non-Latter-day Saint entities mm-hmm. on mm-hmm. on trying to get the film off the ground. And it's important that our audience know this is not a Latter-day Saint film. Absolutely not. There is not one mention of the church in the whole thing. I was the only, I think my family, when we went up, we were the only members on set. Yeah. And it was shot in, it was shot in Canada um, uh, with a Canadian crew that none of the actors are LDS. Yeah, they don't know. Most of them had never heard of BYU or, or the church. Or yeah, they they, they just um, they're just you know full time entertainers and actors and filmmakers and, uh, but it it is. I'm glad that you mentioned that because I because it has come through BYU. I think a lot of people feel like it's a quote unquote LDS film, but yeah, it's not. But it's not. And you know, you mentioned it as a romantic comedy, and it does have this this romantic kind of subplot in it, but. I really like that, and I love that you've seen it because a lot of these interviews that I've done, the folks haven't seen the yeah. film yet. So, but the the great thing about this adaptation is that the romance, which does not exist in the novel, mm. 
it is a B or a C or yeah. a D plot. It's not the driving story. Right. And most Christmas movies, Hallmark movies in particular, shout out to Hallmark. We love what you do. It's great. Yeah. But the romance is the driver of the entire plot. Mm. And this this is really about one young young woman's journey to the truth and to learning to adult yep. and to make better decisions. And the romance is just kind of a piece of a much bigger puzzle. Yeah, it's definitely, and the other, the character, I would say the character acting opposite her is not the romantic character, it's an entire family. Amen to that. And it is a family comedy. I took, it's one of the, one of the things that's great about it is I took my uh, 21-year-old daughter, and you know, we've all taken our kids to movies where there's a scene or two where you go, I can't believe I'm sitting next to my daughter for this scene, there's none of that. Yeah. It's it's a very clean film, great film to share with your neighbors. You um, seem to write a lot, even beyond uh, Christmas jars, a, a lot about Christmas. Where does this great love of Christmas come? I think it comes from my from my parents. From my growing up, we had a, a another tradition that I grew up with um, that my father kind of instilled. Uh, where we did, and I know a lot of families do the 12 days of Christmas for someone, but my dad took it to a completely different level where every day there was a handmade gift that represented that day, mm. but didn't really have anything to do with the day. That was the the funny part <laughs> of it. And then a letter that explained why the gift didn't match up yeah. from the secret family of elves. Um, and that consumed our Decembers growing up. We did that with our family when... Um, I got married and the kids were young, um, but it was hard to for the kids to be as involved because it was. It, it, this was a multi-hour, every day during December kind of investment, and that's actually where Christmas jars kind of came from because it was something so easily that we we could all get involved with. So I just I don't have any memories um, going all the way back to being a little kid in Germany. I have no memories where Christmas was not just it's. It's why we lived in December. And today, my home with my wonderful wife, I mean, it it looks like the North Pole <laughs> has exploded in our living room. You got have, the winter wonderland going, huh? She's got, and it's not, it's not overly done. It's not, she hasn't spent a fortune. She's really careful about how she does it. But I think we have 24 trees up total. 24 trees? Count, wait, wait, wait. Counting wait. some that are smaller. I just want to be clear. You just said it's not overdone. We have 24 trees. So I'm counting trees of all sizes. And yes, I do understand that it sounds like it's overdone. Um, we're going to post some pictures on social media. Okay. So. We'll share them on our social media site. Yeah. Sounds awesome. I love Christmas. I I love it. I just think it's... And uh, in, in because now of, with Christmas jars now for 14 years, I mean, you when it's July and it's 100 degrees outside and you come home from you know, the gas station and you've got 50 cents in your pocket or you find 50 cents, you know, in the couch cushions and you drop it in that jar on the counter. How can you not think about what you're doing and why it matters? And that months from then, a family in need will will be the recipient of all of this, like, grown, accumulated goodness. It's just, it's hard to not think about Christmas all year long. Yeah, it's awesome. At the premiere, they actually gave out jars to everybody. Oh, they, cool. they gave everybody a jar so they could start their own. So if families want to do a Christmas jar, it's that simple. Uh, in the movie, the jars are decorated. Do you decorate your jars? Uh, some years we have, um, but generally we'll write like CJ on it, like in Sharpie or my wife will put, you know, write Christmas jars on it maybe. Um, the first couple of years we put like fake snow on them and we they were a little bit more elaborate. But yeah. Um, we kind of moved away from that. And I always tell people like this, you do it however you want to do it. If you want to spend three hours and go to Hobby Lobby and bling that thing up, more power to you. <laughs> and if you want to just take an empty peanut butter jar and, and a plastic one, who cares? And yeah. wash it out and start putting your money in it. I guarantee you the family that receives that gift, preferably anonymously during the days leading up to Christmas, they're, they're not going to care what it looks like. It's the, the message is profound no matter what the package might be awesome what uh what was it like when you saw the movie i mean you were on set for part of it Mm -hmm. but when you really saw the final movie beginning to end what was the emotion behind that Mm, 
Yeah. I mean, I, it was hard. I cried through a lot of it, even when I wasn't supposed to be, because it was really, it, it was pretty overwhelming. It still is. The, um, surreal, you yeah. know, it's, you've, it's been in my head for so long. You know, you write these characters and you see them a certain way. And, um, and, and also, I think it's important to say a lot of relief that it turned out as well as it did, that they were as true to the book as they were. Yeah. There are a few small changes that um, folks that have read the book will recognize quickly, but always are in a movie, always. But they're they're they do not impact at all. In fact, the script went through half a dozen versions over the years, and this the one they shot was by far the closest mm. to that original hundred page book. So, um, yeah, relief and joy and an an intense amount of gratitude and and for me, such a this has been a family. A family journey, and all, not all my books have been like that. Um, some have been. My wife hasn't even read them until they were off to my editor. But, but Christmas jars from beginning to the film has been a family journey for every every member of my gang. Did you get to go back while you were watching it a little bit and pat your third grade self on the back and say you did it? Yeah, there has been there's been some of that. I've tried to be careful to not um, let that kind of overtake me. I. Mm. I have known too many people who have gotten wrapped up in in success, no matter what field yeah. it might be in. And and I think the Lord has put some of those case studies in my life mm. as little warning signs. Jason, you know what you witnessed over here? Don't do that. Yeah, don't do this. Um, so I I try to be really careful. But but by golly, it's pretty darn cool to sit there and know that this started with you know Molly and Polly. That's awesome. Have you gotten uh, feedback from other people if they shared their stories of their own thousands. family Christmas jar? Thousands. thousands. Thousands and thousands. Is there one that stands out? Oh. There are they there are so many. Go to christmasjars.com. Um you'll you'll find stories from all around the world. Um I got one uh, just heard it on the Dave Ramsey show. Actually, a, a caller called mm-hmm. in and and explained the movement uh, to Dave Ramsey, whom I'm, I'm sure people listening know. And uh, he was in Utah and received a jar and talked about. He just bawled on the radio. Just talked about how it changed his life. He and his newlywed wife and trying to go to school and working three jobs and had no idea that anyone knew how bad it was. You know, they just were. They'd kind of been hiding just how, how real the struggle was to survive. and uh, But I, I think the my all-time favorite story, and there's a little vignette that we shot um, a couple of months ago that you can find on our website on BYU TV. Uh, and in fact, it aired at the film. You probably saw it with the Birch family. With the oh, yeah, boy. yeah. Um, this, this little boy had cancer. He was five years old, Christmas Eve of 2005, the year mm. the book came out. They got... Uh, two large jars on their doorstep and a note indicating these are for, you know, your son. And he just felt like he didn't need it. He said, I just, I think we should pay this forward at five years old. And I've gotten to know the family very well. We're very close. And um, this isn't like, you couldn't make this up. I mean, you couldn't, you, there's no way you could fictionalize. It's, it's the real deal. And um, I love that story. I love the family. I love what it represents because it wasn't about, it wasn't about the money. It was about the message for them. And it was amazing. Yeah. Just awesome. Uh, as much as we've, you know, time of year and the film and everything else makes sense for the Christmas jars, as you've alluded to, it's not your only book. You have a, a variety of books. How many books do you have out that, uh, that people can, can find? 15. 15 books. 15. I know. Some of them I actually wrote by myself. Um, My brand new book is called The Christmas Doll. It's a children's picture book, illustrations by Howard Lyon. He's an artist, actually, in American Fork. Oh, really? Very talented guy. Um, Brilliant, brilliant painter. Um, And it's based on a story from Gail Miller's life. I wrote her memoir a couple years ago, and Mm. she very graciously allowed me to tell this story from her childhood about a Christmas that she'll never forget. Um, I hope people will give that a look. Um, I alluded to this family tradition of the 12 days of Christmas. We I wrote a novel called The 13th Day of Christmas. That's been out a couple of years that uh, 
again, you mentioned I like Christmas. I've half of my books have Christmas themes in them. Yeah. Um, I just published a, an ebook exclusive on Am- on Amazon last week called Seen Love Lifted. It's kind of my first foray into my own kind of nonfiction, but talking about the the role that we have on earth to be the not just the hands of the Lord, but the eyes of the Lord. Mm. Um, and I've got the Wednesday Letters novel and film development now. It came out after Christmas Jars, the year after Christmas Jars. And we think we might see that shot this next year. And um, so lots of stuff cooking. And and um, I, I have a hard time paying attention to more than one thing at a time. So <laughs> I have about a dozen. <laughs> My daughter who's joined us today yes, is nodding. Yes, your daughter is sitting here. Yes. Is nodding. You have a hard time paying attention to more than one thing. Yes, and people people listening will recognize JD's name and face because we have done many lip syncs that have that have attracted quite the global audience. So it's awesome. So look for a Mary Poppins video. That's our best, right? You got to look for the Mary Poppins video. Um, but I love yes, it. Lots of good stuff coming in twenty twenty. Are you writing something right now? Are you do you like always have a project or two that you're working on? I do. I have um. A children's, um, like a middle grade chapter book I'm working on called Fat Dakota that I I absolutely love. And um, it, about a fat kid named Dakota. That's awesome. And I, I can't, uh, no one's read any of it. Uh, not even my family has read any of it yet. But I'm I'm really excited. I think it, it takes some of the themes I've, I've been teaching in schools over the last few years and, and pulls it into dramatic narrative. I'm really excited. I think that's important to note because we have a kind of a broad audience. You go to schools and you speak, you speak to organizations. Mm-hmm. If people are interested in having you speak to their organization or come to their kids' school, if you know our listeners have kids in school, they want you to come speak, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Uh, go to jasonfright.com, click on speaking. Um, you can message us on Facebook. Um, and uh, yeah, we do um, school assemblies all around the country every year. We have You'll see on the website half a dozen different programs that, that we offer. We do writing workshops, a lot of corporate speaking engagements. I know you do a lot of that, too, um, and to kind of keep me busy in between writing projects. But, yeah, I'm, I'm easy to find. And and if you get an email back, it's probably from me. Um, I answer my own email and my own phone calls. And so, yeah, I would love to come see you somewhere. That is just awesome. So much going on. It's incredible. And of course, if people want to know more about the Christmas jars and how they can start their own Christmas jar, that is, is it best to go to just christmasjars.com? Christmasjars.com. You can find the books, uh, the DVD, everywhere books and DVDs are sold. Um, if you happen to be near a Desera book, um, they've got some really interesting promotions on jars and books and DVDs right now. Um, Amazon is a great option for the DVD. They've got it priced, yeah. I think, at like $11. So. Well, it's it's a phenomenal movie. I will say, it's and I'm I'm critical on movies. Uh, it's a great film. It's a great film. Buy it. Give it to someone. Give it to someone with a jar. Start the tradition yourselves. You. It's it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. This has been a great conversation. I've so enjoyed sitting down and getting to know you. Appreciate it. I didn't prep you for this last part, but we ask all of our guests the same question. Some are prepped beforehand. But for you, we're just going to spring it on you. And that's, Jason, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Great question. It means um, it means being willing to give up the world for Christ. And it means really understanding what it means to be a disciple. Like really understanding in, in 2019... We don't dress like he dressed or like the 12 dressed in the New Testament. We don't speak the way that they spoke. We don't, most of us, fish the way they fished. Um, But there are a lot of similarities to what he expects of us. And what are we willing to give up? Um, What temptations and habits and distractions that 2019 will throw at you? What are we willing to set aside to be a disciple and to really follow him and to trust divine patterns. I really, I believe that so much of what we can learn every day is, has been laid out by him and by the father, um, for longer than we know. And if we just will open our eyes to some of those patterns and, and just, you know what, be kind. Being Mm -hmm. a member of the church means being, uh, loving 
and accepting and tolerant and firm that what you believe is true, um, but recognizing that the Lord loves us all, whether we're in sacrament meeting on Sundays or not. (laughs) I love it. He is a noted author, speaker, bishop, big fan of Christmas, Hmm. and just an all-around good guy. Jason F. Wright, thank you for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. And my special thanks to my new friend, Jason F. Wright. What a tremendous man he is. I so enjoyed sitting down and talking to him and getting to meet his daughter. It was just wonderful. Uh, Christmas Jars, the book and the movie are both available. Deseret Book, Siegel Book, and you can watch the movie on uh, BYU TV this month. Just awesome. Uh, Again, one last call. If you want to be part of our Christmas episode, please send me your Christmas stories. Uh, You can email them to sean at latterdaylives.com. That's S-H-A-W-N at latterdaylives.com. Or send it to me as an Instagram instant message or on Facebook Messenger. I'd love to get that into our episode. Uh, This week in my Latter-day Life, uh, I think I mentioned last week we were heading to Orlando for the weekend And uh, we went to Disney World, had a wonderful time. I love Disney World so much. The weather was perfect. It felt so good. And we had a great time. But before we did that, uh, we went and spent a day at the Kennedy Space Center. Now, I have never been to the Kennedy Space Center. And I got to admit, I wasn't super excited about it. Not that I didn't want to go. I just wasn't specifically excited to go. I'm not a big space guy, not into NASA and and all that stuff, but uh, my kids were excited. My wife was too, so we we went, and it was really neat. I have to say, far better than I thought it would be. Just a, a cool place, and each one of the exhibits was more interesting than than the first, and really amazing stuff. And it really opens up your eyes to how big of an effort it is to have a space program, we took a tour that took us out to the different launch sites, and and throughout the day, it kept growing in me how impressive the scientists are with NASA, how impressive the engineers are, and and just man and, and these machines, and it's just incredible. And at the very end of the day, uh, they actually have the space shuttle Atlantis there, and it's massive, the actual space shuttle Atlantis is hanging inside this huge museum and you can walk around it and it's just incredible and they do a film beforehand and then they they open up the doors to it and this is sort of the last thing that we went and did and as I stood there looking at this craft that man had created I thought it's it's incredible what man has been able to accomplish I mean this was just a monument to man's technology and man's thinking and 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 by man, of course, I mean men and women, lots of men and women working on this. And it was just impressive. And then we went, and they have kind of a ride simulator. Uh, and it's a motion, you know, where they've, they've got a simulator as if you're you're flying in a, a space shuttle and a screen in front of you. And it's really a neat experience. And at the end of it, you know, the space shuttle makes it out into space and the doors up at the top open, the bay doors open, and you look up and you see all the stars. And that was the first time that day that I recognized that the reason that all of this is so incredible is because of the stars. It's because of the other planets that are out there and the stars and all these things that God created for us. And somehow realizing how massive the universe is how huge our planet is, how many stars are out there, and how many planets are out there, suddenly all this grandeur of what man has accomplished became very small to me as I sat pondering on the stars and the universes that our loving God has created for us. And it was really interesting, the perspective. You know, the scriptures talk about how each one of us is so infinitely great, and yet we are less than a speck of dust. And it all made sense to me that day at the Space Center that the things that we have accomplished are tremendous and our own importance is incredible. But when you really look at the big picture and you think 
of this vast world and universe that God has created for us, what nothing we are and how great he is, that what we create, suddenly the things that I was thinking, wow, the most incredible people in the world, suddenly the space shuttle and everything else seemed like tinker toys (laughs) compared to the universe that God has created. I'm grateful to live at a time that we have such incredible technology, but I'm even more grateful for a loving God who gives us such a beautiful, beautiful universe to live in and to explore and to be able to sit and look at the stars and know that by his hand these were made. And it's especially appropriate at this Christmas time of year, for it was the star that he used, one star brighter than all others, to guide us. And we can still look to those stars and know that God is there and that he cares. And we should look to the one star as a symbol of Christ, because that's why we're all here. That's why any of this matters, is because Christ was born. Unto us a child was born, and that is the star, Jesus the Christ. That is our guiding light. That is what is most important. And all these other things just become secondary at best. I'm so grateful for a loving God who guides us and who takes us through all these difficult trials that we go through, and I'm grateful for Jesus Christ, our North Star, our guiding star, that leads us and uh, shows us the way to get back to our Heavenly Father. Merry Christmas to everyone. My heart is very full for all of you. The incredible support you show this, this show and for the guests that come on and testify of their love of Christ, and for all of you and all of us, I think, We're trying to follow that star. Be of good cheer this Christmas season. You are doing great things. Everybody is falling short, but we're all sure trying. And if we keep moving toward that North Star, toward Jesus Christ, we will return and be together with God one day. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in as always. Again, I'm just so grateful. The amount of support that this show gets is just incredible. If you feel like reaching out to me, again, it's Sean at LatterdayLives.com. I'd love to hear from you. And that's about all we have for this episode. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. <music>